Our podcast deals with distressing topics. It may not be suitable for everyone. If you need to talk to someone, support is available. Call Lifeline on 131114 anytime for confidential telephone crisis support. This podcast is about my search for answers. We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. We started putting children behind barbed wire. All persons are free and equal in dignity and rights. Episode 5 Be the Change The Human Rights Organizations Welcome back to Women and Children First. In this episode, we'll speak with some key advocates from human rights organisations, including Dr Graham Tom, Head of Refugee Advocacy for Amnesty International Australia, Paul Power, CEO of the Refugee Council of Australia, and from the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, we'll be speaking to Con Karapanagiotidis and Jana Favreau. These are some of the human rights organisations that are at the coalface when it comes to supporting refugees and people who are seeking asylum. They navigate our migration system every day and they're best placed to comment on it. Dr Graham Tom has worked with Amnesty International Australia for over 20 years as a refugee rights advisor. I asked Dr Tom how he came to work for Amnesty. I did a master's in strategic and defence studies, but my master's sort of looked at the movement of people as a security threat and the way that the language of of movements of people was sort of being couched in in military language. And this was sort of back in the, the early 90s and sort of thought, well, you know, are we talking about the same thing here? You know, what are people saying when they're they're talking about waves of people invading and, and those sorts of things? And thought, well, you know, it's not really a, a, a military threat, a threat, but are they talking about a threat to identity and culture? And, you know, so that um, sort of then led on to my, my PhD in, in international relations that really looked at migration and uh, through the lens of citizenship and, and what we mean by citizenship. And, you know, are we talking about rights or are we talking about rights and identity uh, or a mixture of both? And uh, so I looked at the way Australia changed from, you know, a white Australia policy to a multicultural identity and how the UK sort of shifted from a very broad notion of being a British subject to, again, a narrower British citizen, but not um, defined by your ethnicity. Uh, So um, in the same way that they took away the rights from people from India and Pakistan and the West Indies to automatically come the people who were already there suddenly were British um, or British citizens. Um, 
but race still has an element in that which is interesting and then i also looked at germany and the guest worker program and then how they dealt with having seven million uh people in their country who were now second generation and third generation but not necessarily citizens um so yeah that sort of um got me interested in in what we're talking about in terms of rights and this thing called human rights and are human rights more important than citizenship rights and so when I finished my thesis I was looking at what am I going to do and uh, thought well I'm waiting for the results to come through I might volunteer with Amnesty International because they were, were working on cases and I thought I've done a lot of theory about individuals who are refugees and migrants I should probably actually meet some and uh, get a bit of first-hand experience. And, uh, you know, that was at the end of the 90s. And uh, suddenly boats started to arrive and detention centres were being opened up and uh, all sorts of things started to happen. And I thought, well, you know, being with Amnesty, I'm here meeting senior politicians, I'm doing media interviews, I'm appearing before Senate committees, I'm going into detention centres. Now, this is actually the hands-on kind of work that I want to do and actually somewhere I where I can make a difference. You know? Because before then I thought, yeah, should I be an academic? I thought, if I'm an academic, I won't be doing this kind of work for years. You know? this, this seems like a much better place to be. Well, well, it seems like you really have found your calling. Human beings have been removed from the discourse when it comes to offshore detention. It's very difficult to hate people when you get to know them. What are your thoughts? The ability to take people out of mind, out of sight, and then control the narrative around who these people are uh, and instill that fear and hate um, and without that personal side of it, you know, it, it is very easy to demonise people who are on boats, you know, um, as these hordes. Once again, the hordes are coming, and we don't know who they are. And you get your your politicians who say they could be terrorists, they could be this, they could be that, without actually, you know, having you know the luxury I've had of of being able to meet these individuals and have that experience of getting to know them and and as you say hearing their hopes and their dreams and hearing them talk about their families and their parents and and missing friends and what this is one of the reasons why Craig Foster has connected because of the fact that so many of these guys love sport and are decent sportsmen and can talk about sport in the way that we all love to talk about football or cricket or, you know, and again, you just understand that these are people whose life meant that they had to get to safety in a particular way, that they didn't have the luxury of just being able to rock up to an airport and fly to safety, that they had to use whatever means. And it doesn't make them any different from anybody else. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I always love to do when I give a talk to, to university students. I have a, a picture, and again, this dates back to 
the first iteration of the Pacific Solution when there was a particular ethnic group from Iraq called the Sabaean Mandaeans, who are followers of John the Baptist and very persecuted group. But a number of them have, had come by boat. Some of them had come uh, as migrants. Some had come, you know, through the resettlement program. And when the last group came off Nauru and came to Australia and we were you know, lobbying hard to get them here. They held a, a party to thank us and with a great big cake that said, thank you, Amnesty International. And so I took a picture of, of this family, which included their relatives who had come either as migrants or as under the humanitarian visa. And there, there's a family. It's just a family. And I say to the students, okay, you tell me which are the queue jumpers in that photo. You, know, you point them out to me. And of course you can't. You would have no idea looking at that photo, but some people had to flee in one way and others had to flee in another. But that's the, that's what families do in a crisis and they they gamble and they pick every which way they can to get out in the hope that someone will make it. And, you know, this, this photo for me just captures that so beautifully. That's a great example. We'll include that image on our social media so listeners can have a look. Why is it that politicians can distort the truth with rhetoric and terms like queue jumpers and illegals? Well, I think, you know, this is the big question and it really is the the just bizarre sort of idiosyncrasies that we have here in Australia, which are so difficult to explain to, to people outside of Australia. You know, even... Uh, then Prime Minister Turnbull trying to explain it to uh, President Trump around why these people you know, on, on Manus and Nauru weren't dangerous. You know, they weren't criminals. It was simply a fact that they tried to get here by boat that meant they were locked up offshore um, and they were refugees. And even the Prime Minister was saying, you know, we know who they are. We know they're not dangerous, but we just can't have people arriving by boat. And even at that level, it just seems so incongruous to you know, Trump that this is how we were treating just ordinary refugees. But that's that conversation is replicated every time you try and explain the differences outside of this country. It only makes sense if you're in Australia and you've been through the way the narrative has developed here. And I think it does date back. It dates back to Federation and the fact that you know, White Australia was one of the first pieces of legislation that was enacted uh, when we became a federation. And that's, you know, has underpinned, I guess, the importance of the federal government being able to control migration. And that element of control is so important. And that was right the way up to the Second World War. And then even with the populate or perish, when we knew we needed more migrants, we had to show we were in control. And, you know, so the first non-British Irish migrants, you know, they had to be white. You know, they had to come from, you know, Estonia. Uh, and there was videos taken, the old newsreels, to show to Australians that, look, they're blonde-haired, blue eyes, just like us. They're not a threat. But again, it was all about control. And even when the Refugee Convention was being developed, and we often take a lot of pride in the fact that Australia helped formulate the convention. You know, we were there post-Second World War, developing human rights for the world. 
And yet, even as the refugee convention was being developed, this idea that somebody could just show up and claim protection was something the Australian officials pushed back on. And they said, surely you don't mean just anyone. And it was, you know, to their credit, the European government said, yes, that's exactly what we mean. That's the point of what we're talking about. So they, even back then, Australia didn't like the idea that just anybody could show up. And I guess what makes it worse is that linking it in with that whole yellow peril, the hordes above us, those old, again, newsreel images that they're all going to flood down on us. And so it, it ties in just beautifully with the imagery of boats arriving. You know, we don't know who these people are. They are easy to, to I guess, identify and film. And that, I guess, makes them, as you say, a real political tool because, you know, we have or at least we did before this crisis, thousands of people arriving every hour by plane. And you could stand in an airport and watch people come out through arrivals. And you would have no idea who was the migrant, who was the refugee, who was the citizen, um, you know, who was the student. Everybody looks the same when they come through an airport. And, uh, and so to say, well, we've got this many refugees coming by plane, nobody cares. It's just not a political issue. But once they're on a boat, you can see them and you can then count them. And that imagery ties in with all that history and that inability to control borders that has always been a foundation of this country. And so I guess that's where this idea of illegals comes in. And, and you know, that whole idea of queue jumping and illegal, that really negative, nasty language only makes sense in Australia as well. Because we have a, a resettlement program, we do take thousands of refugees every year from offshore. And so you can easily divide even migrant communities and even refugee communities to say, hey, your family did the right thing. These people are jumping the queue. Yeah. And suddenly, you know, even refugee communities are being poisoned by this notion that there are proper channels and that there are correct ways that you should be coming to a country without understanding the reality of what it is to be a refugee. And that notion that you flee however you can to wherever you can get safety and you have a right to do that. And that, you know, the government has been very clever in removing that part of the narrative that we're not actually saving people, you know, helping people when they're coming by boat, that somehow these people are doing something wrong. And it, in fact, that's something that they should uh, be stopped in doing. And we can lock them up indefinitely because they did something wrong. It's their fault that you know, they're trapped on Nauru or that they're trapped in P&G because they knew they were doing something wrong, apparently. And, and you know, so any punishment is OK. I mean, it's awful to read the comments sections you know, on any article about refugees in this country. Sadly, it's not too different from a lot of countries, to be honest. But this idea is just prevalent that they did something wrong and therefore this is all right what we're doing to them is okay without you know the our leaders in this country have completely ignored the fundamentals of what it is to be a refugee and the rights of refugees and the right to seek asylum and yeah creating this dichotomy of of the good refugees who wait patiently and the bad refugees who 
self-select and are economic and use people smugglers. And so the, the use of language and how it's been manipulated in Australia is really unique. And, and unfortunately, it has been sold to the rest of the world. And it's now what we're seeing in Europe with people crossing, you know, either out of Turkey or the Mediterranean. It's what we're seeing from people coming out of Latin America into the US. You know, the same language is just now being replicated around the world, sadly. It is sad to see that Australia's being emulated in this way. To be seen as thought leaders in the dehumanisation of people seeking asylum is shameful. Your thesis looked at human rights versus citizens' rights. Can you speak to how they differ? Yeah, well, I guess it's really interesting, you know, as I said, looking at my thesis and the idea of, of citizenship rights versus um, human rights. And one of the clear things that I could see was that refugees, even though there's this convention that's supposed to protect them, actually is often a group that uh, are demonised and you know, have their rights removed particularly in Australia, with uh, mandatory detention. And I think it, it then comes back to that question of who do we want as migrants or who do governments want as migrants and how do they allow those people to come while at the same time almost identical groups of people are excluded on the basis that they actually have a right to, to seek protection. And because of that right, the government loses some control. And a lot of it is about government control, who they want to let in, who they don't want to let in. You know, John Howard actually was uh, the clearest, I guess, in articulating that, you know, you know, slap bang in the face of the 1951 Refugee Convention. And that's really, I think, what a lot of governments are thinking without saying, or at least until very recently, where governments have become far more explicit in actually saying it. And those barriers that, you know, we were talking about 20 years ago in Australia are now very common in Europe and North America and other places. And I think it is that inability of people to move freely, you know, the right to leave one's country, the, you know, the right to seek protection, all these things that should be basic human rights, you don't have in reality, at least a lot of people don't, you know, white middle-class Australians tend to think everybody has that right and everybody can just get on a plane and why aren't they coming through the proper channels? And they just don't understand that for the vast majority of the world's population, that simply is not the case. And it's always interesting when I go to to meetings in, in places like Switzerland and we want to take a refugee with us to talk to UNHCR, just how difficult it is for that individual, despite being a recognised refugee, to go to UNHCR to speak is almost impossible because of the, the visa requirements that they have to jump through. Whereas I just call my travel agent and the next thing I know, I'm on the plane. And as long as I've got my passport, Every year through I go. So, you know, you're absolutely right. But it, it, it's it's in a way that really impacts on certain countries, certain nationalities, certain ethnicities. You know, you think of groups like the Rohingya, for instance. And if you are born as a Rohingya, your world is very different from somebody who's born Anglo-Australian from the second you are born. 
you know, your life is going to be very different, regardless of how intelligent, hardworking, talented you are. That label that you know, of nationality is going to follow you and impact on how you can move, where you can go, the kinds of work you can do pretty much for the rest of your life. It really is bizarre just how arbitrary it is. A real case of there but by the grace of God go I. And yet there's very little soul searching going on. Asking ourselves, what if I just happened to be born somewhere that meant I had to flee for my life? Can you tell me a little bit about what it's like on Nauru and in PNG? Yeah, I mean, I've been to Nauru and we went to Nauru shortly after it was reopened by the, the Labor government, um, end of 2012. And I've also been to P&G, but I've only been to Port Moresby. I never got to Manus because by that stage, it was actually when they officially shut the centre on Manus, but they then moved them to, to the other centres. But there were a number of people already in Port Moresby, so I was able to visit people in Port Moresby, both were equally confronting for some of the same reasons. I guess um, going to Nauru when it was had just been reopened was was pretty uh, horrific because clearly the facilities just weren't going to be able to to look after vulnerable people. This is when there were tents. It was really sharp gravel. It was hot. You know the. The gravel was from the phosphate mine, so you know it just the glare was just constant. You could already see how the people were suffering, and we were there when you know you had a tropical storm, the rain coming down, and we were looking at the water coming through the tents. There was a foot deep of water outside the tents as well. And you know, we were going live with media in the evening saying, this is what the tents were like. And the Department of Immigration were coming back and saying, no, the tents don't leak. And we're like, we're literally looking at them. We're here looking at them. We're telling you. you know, um, um, but they wouldn't let us take any photos, which again was fascinating. And it was one of those things where we were told this is not an Australian operation. This is a Nauru operation. We're just providing support. And so we'd met with the senior politicians in Nauru and we'd got permission to take photographs. And when we rocked up, we did a number of visits. Um, and when we rocked up to actually take photos and we'd negotiated with the people running the centre as well to come in early in the morning so we wouldn't take individuals. We didn't want to put individuals at risk. We just wanted to show the conditions. But when we rocked up early in the morning, we were told, no, Canberra has said you are not allowed to take photos. And we said, but the government of Nauru says we can. And they said, no, we are here to uh, operationalise the contract. And the contract says nobody's allowed to take photos and you're not going to be allowed to take photos, which showed to us very quickly who was actually running the centre and who had control over these people's lives. And it was clear then that it was going to end badly. Uh, what was very interesting was that the government was making pronouncements in, in Canberra that these people were never going to be allowed back to Australia. And and you got just such a sense of how unfair it was. These people couldn't understand why some of them who you know had been on the same boat were now 
living in the community in Australia while they had been selected for some reason to be taken to Nauru in these horrible conditions. And when pronouncements were being made, first they had said the day before, oh, we don't really think amnesty needs to come back in again. You've seen the centre. And then they said, well, actually, this pronouncement's just been made. It might be an idea if you come in and that way you can explain what's going on. We thought, this is just bizarre. We're Amnesty International. Why are we explaining to these men what on earth this means? And and sure enough, six months later, it ended in disaster. That's when you had the first riot on Nauru. And, you know, it just totally shifted any goodwill that had been on Nauru. Um, suddenly, you know, the whole well was poisoned, really. And, you know, ironically, these men were told they would never come back to Australia. And then Gillard and, and Rudd changed again. And so everybody from Nauru was brought back and uh, a whole new group of people, this time families and children, were taken over. But Amnesty had gone to Manus you know, not long after that as well, and seen exactly the same thing in Manus. And it wasn't, again, it was about six months after we'd been that you then had the attack on the men in Manus and, and Reza Barati beaten to death. And in part because, you know, the refugees were told these people are uncivilised and savages and they don't want you here. And the locals were told these people are all Muslim terrorists. You know, you can't trust them. And so the animosity between the locals and, and the refugees was already being set up. This is, you know, six years ago, seven years ago. So, you know, we could just see that this environment was just going to be so toxic and was going to end badly. We'd already seen that the first time they'd, they'd tried taking people offshore and the damage that had done had, had done to people and you know I've visited a number of the detention centers in Australia and I've been to detention centers around the world and and you can tell when things are about to go really really wrong and it was obvious the way that they had been set up that it was going to go really badly and it was going to cause some really long-term damage to those individuals. And, and I think the, the suicides that we saw, again, were, were totally predictable because of, of the way it was designed to just break those men. So, yeah, and then, you know, it's, it's pretty brutal because, once again, you're there saying, you know, we're Amnesty, we're a human rights organisation, our role is to end this and help you. But we know full well that this is going to take years to unpack. And these men are already saying, and the families, you know, Amnesty was able to go back a few years later to uh, Nauru as well. I couldn't get there because by this stage, they'd stopped anybody coming from Australia uh, going. So we'd made a number of requests to go back to Nauru and these were just being blocked. So ultimately, we, we sent a, a researcher who was Russian and Russians were able to, to go and she was able to see the families and what it was doing to the families on Nauru. And we, this was at the time when, 
you know, we were already getting those reports of, of what was happening to, to the women, what was happening to some of the children, um, the rapes and the sexual abuse and, and all those sorts of things. And yeah, it's, you know, for anybody who works with refugees and particularly on this issue, it's very difficult because you're trying to keep people alive, give them, you know, some hope when you know that whatever we do, even if we are successful, is going to take an extraordinary amount of time, effort and energy. And some of these people, as we saw, just didn't have the time. And despite, you know, some very good lawyers, some very good medical people pleading to say, you have to get this person off, um, they are not going to survive. You know, these were the people who we saw commit suicide on on Manus. And, uh, and then when they moved them into Port Moresby, once again, we were trying to say, this is just a dangerous place, full stop, a dangerous place for foreigners. Despite any goodwill from, from the P&G government, their ability to, to protect their own citizens is limited. Uh, these refugees are going to stick out like a sore thumb. And once again, you know, we were meeting people who had been robbed, who had been beaten. You know, we still get reports. I mean, they're all now in lockdown, like we all are. But for months and you know, years, um, I'd get regular updates that once again, somebody was on a bus and they were beaten and had their phone stolen and just totally fearful. And this was after years of, of trauma they'd gone through on Manus. So, you know, the, the fear that they were experiencing. Uh, and as I say, I was there a number of years ago and it was awful then to think that they're still there was, was just horrific. It just highlights, you know, how dangerous these environments are and how inappropriate it is to take vulnerable refugees to countries where, you know, the, the health system is limited, the policing is limited, uh, particularly, you know, traditional communities where so much of, of the protection is from your ethnic group, your clan. Um, and if you don't have that, you're in real trouble. So um, it was a disaster. It is a disaster. And you know, the sad thing about where we're at with, with COVID-19 is we were hoping to get people off. And, and yet, once again, they're just stuck. Dr. Graham Tom, thank you very much for your time. We're going to now speak with Paul Power. He's the CEO of the Refugee Council of Australia, the national umbrella body for agencies working with refugees and asylum seekers. In his early career, he worked in the media as a journalist. I asked Paul Power what influence the media has had in changing the views of Australians towards people seeking asylum. When I think back to, I think it was about 1987 when John Howard was opposition leader and he tried to open up a debate about Asian immigration um, and the re political response, the media response and much of the public response, you know, was very negative, you know, to, to and people could could see through what he was trying to do and, you know, were not prepared to see uh, the country divided um, along uh, ethnic lines like this, you know, that, and you could see that it, it was, uh, he was attempting to exploit, uh, yeah, sort of negative sentiment within parts of the population for political purposes. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot has changed, unfortunately, since then. And of course, the, the nature of the public debate has certainly hidden quite a few things that which, which need to come to light. But I think also, I mean, there's been plenty of opportunities for Australians who are even half awake um, to be aware of what's going on um, in, in the treatment of uh, people who've been detained. Um, I mean, you'd have to be more than willfully ignorant, you know, not to know anything about what's been happening uh, in Nauru and, and in Papua New Guinea to people who were sent there by the Australian government. Um, so, yeah, it's not uh, certainly not all the fault of the media. And I think, you know, there are elements of the media who've done uh, a lot to actually draw public attention to the abuses that are happening. It's just distressing that there actually hasn't been a stronger public reaction against it. I mean, if you think about the, the federal government's current response to uh, the coronavirus, I mean, it's become more obvious than it has before to the, the current government that they actually have to consider the needs of, uh, you know, a larger proportion of the Australian population. But they've drawn the line at the people who are citizens and permanent residents. And, and I think people who are seeking asylum, you know, who... <laughs> In terms of what Australians believe, what we Australians say that we believe about ourselves, we should actually be giving a high priority to, you know, people who are really struggling, people who need help. Um, somehow we've managed to construct a view of ourselves and our, our country and our place in the world where it's acceptable to treat people who are in some of the most distressing circumstances really, really badly. You make a good point about how we see ourselves. I've been asking myself whether the way I've thought of Australia as a vibrant multicultural society is simply a relic of the past. You know, the, the area of Sydney where I grew up, um, southwestern Sydney is very multicultural. I grew up with um, the uh, children of um, post-war refugees and went to school with newly arrived refugees from uh, the Middle East, Latin America and Southeast Asia. Um, and so, you know, for me, Australia's welcoming, you know, in the 1980s, uh, late 70s and uh, through the 1980s, there was a much more optimistic view about the country, um, which certainly, you know, young people had, um, you know, that it was a, a society um, which was putting behind the white Australia policy um, and actually was certainly Australians in the larger cities, or well, many Australians in the larger cities, saw um, Australia being open to the world as a very positive thing. And uh, yeah, I think you know many of us who grew up in the multicultural parts of Sydney um, thought this was a great strength of the country. So it was um, quite a, a shock to me, really, to see the political backlash, you know, which happened, you know, from the mid to late 1990s um, at the federal level, you know, under the Howard government and with uh, the rise of Pauline Hanson, um, you know, pushing a view of Australia, which I didn't share. The view seems to resonate with some parts of the Australian population. And I wonder how much of it is due to false narratives and the politics of fear. Can you speak to the incongruity of treating people in vastly different ways based on their method of arrival into Australia? Political opportunists have managed to present the arrival of people, you know, without formal permission as a security risk, you know, or a threat to the country. Um, I mean, this is one of the things which is very hard for people outside of Australia to understand. Why would Australia treat one uh, refugee family from Afghanistan so badly because they came to Australia by boat to seek asylum and their neighbours were from the same village um, 
you know, assist them to resettle from Pakistan or Iran um, and give them, you know, permanent residency and on-arrival support. I mean, what's going on? You know, so you know, on one level, it's not about, you know, Afghan refugees. You know, I suppose you can argue when the, the, the current government and previous governments have argued, you know, that's, it's not about uh, race. Uh, you know, for them, it's about process. But it's a complete distortion, you know, of the realities of seeking refuge. Um, you know, the, the, the view that's been promoted um, in Australia is that somehow people who are fleeing their country in, in a, a situation where their, their lives are at risk, their personal security is at risk, that they should somehow be applying for some non-existent visa to leave their country as refugees and, uh, you know, and waiting their turn uh, like everybody else for uh, for resettlement to a country like Australia, where the reality is, uh, you know, there, there is actually no formal process for refugees to leave their country of origin. People just get out of the country in whatever way they can. If they can do it on some other form of uh, temporary visa, great. But, you know, they may be pretending to enter the country as tourists or temporary visitors, but their plan is actually, you know, to seek asylum. If they are forced, as the vast majority of the world's refugees are, to enter the country without prior permission, then the Refugee Convention is clear that uh, the people shouldn't be penalised because of that, because that's the nature of refugee flight. You know, and the idea that there is some organised international system and that people just, you know, have to wait their turn for resettlement, you know, is uh, completely at odds with the, the global situation. I mean, at the end of 2018, there were uh, 20.4 million refugees under UNHCR's mandate. That's excluding the 5.5 million Palestinians who've, you know, been going nowhere for 60 years. But if you just look at UNHCR mandated refugees, just over 20 million, there were 92,000 uh, of those refugees resettled in 2018. So if there is some queue for resettlement, then, you know, the queue is, uh, you know, more than two centuries long. A recurring theme in our conversations has been the influence of framing and language informing people's views. You just mentioned the oft-referred-to mythical queue. What do you think about some of the other labels, such as queue jumpers and illegals? Well, of course, I mean, the, the Refugee Convention, which Australia was involved in helping to draft, is very clear about the fact that people should not be penalised for leaving their country in a, in a crisis situation at odds with the normal migration rules. And entry, which would be illegal uh, under other circumstances, should not be penalised. You know, and so, yeah, this idea that somehow, you know, that, that refugees are illegal immigrants is, um, is, is completely false um, and is a, an absolute distortion of the situation for refugees. Um, you know, most of the world's refugees, the overwhelming majority of the world's refugees, left their country of origin and fled to another country without the prior permission of the country that they were entering. I mean, that's just the way that refugees in most circumstances have to leave. Paul Power, thank you very much for your time. Our next guests are from the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, ASRC. Con Karapanagiotidis is the CEO and founder, and Jana Favreau is the Director of Advocacy and Campaigns. The ASRC was founded in June 2001. It's an independent, not-for-profit organisation whose programs support and empower refugees and people seeking asylum. 
Konkara Panagiotidis spoke about the ASRC. So on the 8th of June, we turned 20. And at the heart of it, the ASRC is a place in a movement. It's a place of hope and welcome for refugees that provides everything from sanctuary to legal assistance to food to housing to aid to employment education opportunities. But it's also a movement that's about building systemic change. It's about building a time where we're not needed anymore, where when someone comes seeking asylum in this country, they're treated fairly, humanely, with a universal safety net, with permanent protection, uh, with no detention, and they're given the same opportunities as any other new Australian. So that's what we work for, is a welcoming, just and fair Australia for all, and recognising that if you can't protect your newest Australians who are seeking protection sanctuary, then something is seriously wrong with our democracy, our rule of law and human rights. I love the term new Australians. I haven't heard it much since the 70s and 80s when it was a term that might have been applied to my own parents. Jana Favreau, what role do you think racism plays in the treatment of refugees and people seeking asylum? The, the longer I work on this issue and the more discussions I have, I'm absolutely convinced that racism is at the heart of our treatment of people seeking asylum and refugees. Uh, we, you know, Malcolm Fraser was a patron of ASRC and we had long conversations. I remember when I first met him 11 years ago, I think it was two months after I started working here, he was saying that he really believed that racism was at the heart of, of our treatment of refugees. And I, I sort of debated him and probably had my blinkers on a bit and said, oh, no, I don't think so. Like, if people only knew um, refugees, they would change their mind. I tend to see the good in people. And he was really adamant that because as a country we have never had a conversation about race, the only reason the white Australia policy ended was because we needed migrants, not because we decided to welcome migrants. He believes that racism is what has led to our treatment to this day. And, you know, if I saw him now, I would tell him that I think he's right, that I do believe that racism is what's directed this policy. You even, you know, apart from the examples Connor's just given, have a look at the difference of, you know, even Peter Dutton saying, oh, white South African farmers should be able to come and settle in Australia. But if you've arrived on a, on a leaky boat and you're a man of colour from the Middle East or, you know, Pakistan or Afghanistan, you're not welcome. So our own policies and comments from our government, who are the leaders in this country, confirm that for us. It's no longer guesswork. I think it actually is fact now that racism is what's driving the policy and you've got people in power who are ideologically opposed to people of colour seeking asylum and refuge in our country. I really believe that quite strongly now more stronger than I, than I have, and it's been over years of sort of evidence and conversations rather than just speculation. I had a conversation with someone recently when I was speaking to a Rotary group, and they said that when they were on holidays in Sri Lanka, a lot of people had mentioned wanting to come to Australia. Now, they saw this as evidence of the notion of an economic refugee, and it struck me because I doubt it would have the same effect if that person had gone on holidays to a country like the UK or America and people there had said they'd love to come to Australia. They simply wouldn't make the same mental connection. What do you say to the idea that people are coming here for economic reasons? I think the challenge is we, the minute we engage in that conversation, we've lost the conversation because we're having the wrong conversation. It's like when people say, how many? How many can we take? How many should we take? We go back to this. 
we are either a signatory to the Refugee Convention or we're not. And if we are, that means we will take our fair share. Let's set a, a number that is proportionate to our capacity, but go way beyond that in what else we can do. So what's quite frustrating is exactly no one's anxious about how many Americans come here as economic migrants. There is no such thing as an economic refugee, either a migrant or you're a refugee. But we only get concerned when it's people of different skin colour or of religions that are not our own. But what's a really interesting conversation there is that the conversation is not just one that creates these false dichotomies, but also one that is based on the myth that we've done all we can. When in fact we're doing the very least that we can. We could not be doing less than any other industrialised nation in the world. So I say to people, well, what about we start by just exhausting everything a country as wealthy and great as us could do to do our fair share? But it's interesting because the same argument is actually used against people seeking asylum by saying there's the imaginary queue, which does not exist factually anywhere. But what's interesting is they often use this language that, well, they've bought their way here, they've paid a smuggler. What about those? So they create the, the straw man, the fictitious fictional good and bad refugee, as though Australia resettles refugees for refugee camps based on vulnerability. They, they actually do predominantly based on the right religion, likelihood of assimilation according to their own outdated views. But So it's quite interesting. I think what they do tap into about the boats is they're able to tap into this one thing where Australia is very much a country that is incredibly compliant. Um, and I think what they tap into is this mythology around the person that gets on the boat doesn't do the right thing. And Australians are quite interesting in that they're quite open to accepting more refugees as long as it's done under the idea that there is a control and order and process to it. And what the government does so well is create this idea that when people are coming by boat, even though 99% of the world's refugees get on a boat or cross a border undocumented, that's how most people seek protection globally. Uh, we're not unique to this. They tap into this idea that our borders are at risk and that we should decide who comes here. And look, we don't know the people that are coming here. And it doesn't. And they use that mythology to keep people languishing for eight years in Papua New Guinea and Nauru, even after they've been character tested to death and there's no risk of, of anything to the community. They feed this idea of the, the masses that are coming, the loss of control, the we don't know who these people are. And John Howard really pioneered that when he said, I'm not saying... These people are terrorists that are on these boats, but I cannot guarantee that they're not. And so by conflating seeking protection undocumented, uh, which is completely protected under international treaties that we're signatories to, but by conflating that with a risk to order, to border, to security and to terror, they've, they've really been able to connect the paranoia, the misinformation, the insecurity, the white privilege, the racism, all those things of an island nation. And they've been so smart in dumbing down, tapping into fear, and whipping up hysteria that actually has no basis in reality. But it's worked, and it continues to work, less so than past times. But they're playing the race card right now with COVID. They're, they're desperately trying to find a new iteration of it as they're heading to the next election, as they fall behind the polls. Fear is the card they've got to play, and they're just asking themselves, what, how do they get, tap into enough of that fear around we're the only ones that can keep you safe. Safe from what is the question? Safe from who is the question? And at what cost to our, our moral democracy? A, a profound cost and loss.
can you tell me a bit about what ASRC is doing in response to this misuse of language? What I'd like to um, draw the attention to of, of your listeners, like you'll probably notice we're using the language people seeking asylum, not asylum seekers, when we've been discussing um, in, in the response to, say, someone from a rotary group who asks, asks a tough question, it's really to have those answers that are values-based. Hans, Hans talked a lot about fairness and hopefully people have heard the language that we're using is very people-centric. We realised um, years ago that the conversation we were having to try and change asylum policy wasn't working. Attitudes were hardening, polls were worsening, and so we commissioned quite a large piece of research that was evidence-based as to what would appeal to the general public to be able to get them to change and shift their attitudes on people seeking asylum. And so uh, Words at Work was what came out of that research. It's still very current. If any of your listeners are interested in what words should you or shouldn't you say, and it's just a very easy way to replace things to be able to understand what would appeal and be a more humane treatment of people seeking asylum and refugees, and that's on the ASRC's website. I just think that hopefully after listening to this podcast, people might think, well, what can I do? What have I learned? That's a very tangible way and simple things that people can do straight away by changing language to make sure this is about other fellow humans. It's about dignity. It's people-centric. And we're not falling into the narratives and racism that's perpetrated by the government. This is fantastic work. There's clearly a lot of work that's gone into using language to paint people seeking asylum in a negative light. We'll put a link up on our pages to Words at Work for our listeners to start to use language in a way that will not dehumanise. Con, can you list for me the steps we could take to make a fairer system? One, we provide safe passage to people to come here so no one gets on a leaky boat because none of us actually want that. Two, you invest properly in the UNHCR so they actually can process people effectively and resettle people. Three, you set the moral tone as a leader in a region by taking a, a level of people that is proportionate to your wealth and capacity, thus engaging other countries in the Asia-Pacific region to sign on to the Refugee Convention. Four, you actually significantly increase your refugee intake. Instead of cutting it by 20,000 places over the next four years, solely to fund the inhumanity of detaining people on the route. Uh, five, you actually um, um, practice human rights in accordance to the conventions that we are signatory to, which we fail to do. You know, we're not doing any of those things. You know, six, we're actually forbidding people that are UNHCR assist refugees from Indonesia from even being settled here. We don't have a refugee policy that's aligned to areas that we refuse to almost take anyone from Myanmar right now, even though they're in our region because they're Muslim. So the, the challenge in all of this is they go, oh, but if we do this, then everyone's going to want to come here. It's like, has, we have hundreds of years of modern history that show that is simply not true. Um, what we're talking about is create a fair process, take a fair share, treat people humanely, and encourage others in our region to take their fair share too. We are doing nothing on that front. We are doing the bare minimum. And in fact, we've created a vacuum in our region where others are like, well, Australia locks people up. Look how many other countries are modelling our version of offshore detention and turning people back at sea. Europe is following us. It works for Australia, so it should work for us. You've seen so much during your time with the ASRC, and I know this is a difficult question, but can you share something that's really resonated with you? What affects me the most 
is knowing that this is intentional harm flicked on another human being by someone else. Like that's what stays with me. And I remember in 2017, we went to Manus Island. It was around the time that the detention centre was forced to close. And this is what happens in this issue is that you celebrate a win, then the government finds some way to turn that win into something even worse. So we thought, that the Manus Island Detention Centre was forced to close because unconstitutional in Papua New Guinea. That was great. But what the government then did was just forcibly remove the men and put them in an even worse situation and continuing limbo. So you and your listeners may remember at that time, the men were really, they were staying in the detention centre even though it had been closed because it was the only thing that they had control over was whether or not they were moved. And so we had agreed as a sector that different organisations would go over there to, to really be witness and bear witness to what was happening. So we went over there with a video journalist, with Con and um, with our detention rights advocacy manager, Natasha Blucher as well, just to make sure that we were taking a caseworker with us so that we weren't just trying to get footage for advocacy but that we also could try and help the men further. And just being there and seeing the strength and the resilience and the innovation of the men from all different cultures, all different groups coming together, having these rotating watches of who was on guard, sharing what little food they had. I mean, they sat down with us and they were on rations. Like they had food, water, everything cut off to them. They had to put up this ingenious system of old plastic bottles to funnel down rainwater to have drinking water. And they gave it to us. And we had brought food with us for them. And the first thing they did was open it up and give it to us. And so while there are the horror stories, which are some drive and motivation, there are also these stories of resilience, which are what keep us going. And I just was sitting there and thinking, our policy and our government behind our policy, people are doing this to other people. But the, the drive and things that sit with me is that this can change because it's someone intentionally doing harm to someone else. Thank you for sharing that story. It really does come down to doing harm intentionally to people who are simply seeking safety. What can we do to contribute to change? The really important thing in all of this is, is for the average Australian to, to recognise that, that creating social change is not a lost cause. 20 years ago to where we are now, we, we're fighting many of the same battles around, you know, offshore detention centres and mandatory detention and leaving people in poverty, but we've also seen in 20 years a massive rise in a movement from refugee-led organisations and refugee voices to, you know, a massive groundswell of millions of Australians at different times over the last 20 years that have taken action saying, we actually don't want kids locked up anymore. We actually want a fair go for refugees. We're actually not going to vote in a government at election anymore over uh, demonising refugees. We saw in the last election, it, it lost its efficacy. But the most important thing is that everyone can be a champion of, of change by actually just taking their own heart, their own mind, their own goodwill. You've got all the tools you need inside of you to make the country better. We live in a time where it's easy just to be angry and outraged. It's much harder to to um, just um, step out of that and just go and do something. I think we get so caught up in, in our anger and we need to redirect a lot of that attention. Now, how about I go volunteer somewhere? How about I go and advocate somewhere, join a rally, sign a petition, join a group, volunteer my time, giving kind support, give money to my favourite charity if I can, uh, whatever it might be, but I always say advocate, donate, participate, but do something. What we can't afford in 2021 is to have people who are bystanders. That's the biggest message is you can change the world 
you can make a difference. You'll have a talent that is needed somewhere. Go and make things better. Uh, let's stop wasting our energy just talking about what's broken, what's not working. Um, let's actually take that energy and direct it to finding other like-minded people in your community and get involved locally to tackle issues that are often global, but where you can have a local impact by just caring and being active as, an, as a citizen, as a member of this community, just getting on with, with making things better and doing your bit. It's so old-fashioned and simple, but mm. if more people just did this right now and stopped just sitting there raging online and actually just rolled up their sleeves and had a crack and had a go, we'd be making a hell of a lot more progress right now. When, when the government won't lead us, then we, we must get them to bend to the will of the people. But they will not unless we become the majority of that will. So we only get what we, we are willing to tolerate at the end of the day. Yeah. So we need to do better. We can't just keep pointing at politicians. They're always going to be greedy and selfish and follow, not all, but most, are going to follow the lowest common denominator of self-interest. Um, so we as a community need to demand better of our leaders, better of our media, better of our corporations, better of our charities, better of our communities and better of each other. But if we don't demand that, well, we can't then be expecting things to change. Con Karapanagiotidis and Jana Favreau, thank you so much for your time and for your passion. Uh, your point about just doing something has really resonated with me. I I personally felt driven to do something and my skills are being put into making this podcast. I hope they can contribute to some change and to making a fair system. Thank you to all of our guests, Dr. Graham Tom, Paul Power, Con Karapanagiotidis, and Jana Favreau. In this episode, we've seen the false narrative that's being used to deny basic human rights of people seeking safety. We've heard about the things that we can do to help bring about a fairer system. And we've also discovered some of the terms that can reverse the misuse of language in this space. On our next episode, we're going to continue the human rights organisation discussion and we'll meet some of the passionate staff from the National Justice Project. This podcast would not exist if it weren't for my experience volunteering for the NJP while studying my law degree. During my time at the NJP, my eyes were opened to a number of issues that I was previously unaware of. We'll be speaking with director and founder, Professor George Newhouse, and solicitors, Dr. Daniel Geselbash, Anna Talbot, and Emma Hearn. If you need to talk to someone, support is available. Call Lifeline on 131114 anytime for confidential telephone crisis support. Women and Children First is an Integra co-production in association with the National Justice Project. Produced and mixed by Alex and Gal Roussos. Artwork by Kerry Hardy from Black Sheep Studio. Original music by Tim Hall and Alex Roussos. Visit the Women and Children First Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. WACF Podcast. Thank you.